Deadline's Doc Talk episode is sponsored by National Geographic Documentary Films, presenting Bobby Wine, the People's President. In Uganda's 2021 presidential election, music star, activist, and opposition leader Bobby Wine rallies his people in a dangerous fight for freedom from an oppressive 35-year regime. Bobby Wine, the People's President, starts streaming on Hulu and Disney Plus October 6th. Hi, I'm John Ridley, a writer, director, and founder of No Studios. And I'm Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline Hollywood. And this is Doc Talk, a new podcast where each week Matt and I dig into the critical content being created by some of today's most outstanding documentary filmmakers, storytellers, and industry leaders. Artists who are changing cinema and the world one doc at a time. John, I am so excited about this. We're launching Doc Talk during the Toronto International Film Festival. And of course, one of the great documentarians who's got a film there is Errol Morris, The Pigeon Tunnel. And you have seen it. I have seen it. Um, real quick, Matt, back at you. It's an honor and a pleasure to be working with you. Um, the Pigeon Thank Tunnel, you. the latest film Likewise. by, as you say, legendary documentary filmmaker Errol Morris. I saw it. It's an incredibly fascinating film. I had the opportunity to have an in-depth conversation with Errol about the film, about his career. It's a great conversation. I look forward to sharing that in a future episode. Right, that's coming up in a future episode of Doc Talk. And one of the extraordinary things about Errol, of course, is that his seminal film, The Thin Blue Line from 1988, actually got a guy off of death row in Texas. Randall Dale Adams. He came within three days of being executed. It's really amazing. And it's a true testament to the power of what documentary can do to, in rare cases, get somebody whose life is about to be extinguished for unjust reasons, get them freed. So Errol shared some real revelations about the thin blue line in a conversation with us. Here's director Errol Morris. We are talking with Errol Morris, uh, the director of the new film, The Pigeon Tunnel. One of the things that we're talking about on, on this program is documentaries that have really changed lives, not just generally, not just notionally, but films that have really changed lives. And uh, obviously, we, we couldn't talk about that without talking about Thin Blue Line. I'm with my colleague, Matt Carey of Deadline. We would love to ask you a few questions about looking back on that film and what it has meant knowing that you, I don't want to say you're the only person or the first person who did that, but certainly one who is known for changing lives. I didn't set out to do that. I stumbled on a case in Texas by accident. Uh, I had become obsessed with this Dallas psychiatrist. He has a lovely name, Dr. Death. Why did he get the name? For a while, there was a moratorium on capital punishment in the United States. And uh, the Supreme Court, Furman v. Georgia, struck down existing capital punishment laws, and it left the states to devise new laws that could pass muster with the court. And the states, of course, all those states really enthusiastic about killing people, say, for example, Texas or Georgia, um, enacted new laws. And in Texas, they had a law that meant you had to predict future violence. Not enough to convict someone for something they did. You have to imagine what they're going to do and what better mechanism than the imprimatur of specious medicine. Get some psychiatrists, killer psychiatrists, to make predictions about future behavior, about dangerousness. And I've often said you can't really predict human behavior 
except what these two killer psychiatrists would say in a Texas court of law. They would always say the same damn thing, kill him. He's dangerous. So I went to visit Dr. Death. Sorry for the length of this answer. I went to visit Dr. Death. Kind of liked him. Wouldn't want him as my psychiatrist. So he tells me, you know, you got to meet these guys. They're different than you and me. So he set up interviews with people that he had been at least partly responsible for putting on death row. My prisoner auditions, I kept wanting to say, please dress informally. And I met this one convict, Randall Dale Adams, who had been sentenced to death for shooting a Dallas police officer. It's a long, involved story. I'll spare you. But I spent, I had been a private detective because no one would hire me as a filmmaker after my first two films. No one would hire me after Gates of Heaven in Vernon, Florida. I'd been a private detective. And when I went down to interview Dr. James Grigson, Dr. Death, I thought to myself, oh, thank God I don't have to be a private detective anymore. Well, I was very, very wrong. And I spent two and a half years investigating this crime. I mean, it's in part luck. Who stumbles on something like that? Who stumbles on a story where the person came within three days of being electrocuted and is totally, I'm not saying slightly innocent, I'm saying totally innocent, and then uncovering the person who really committed the crime and getting him essentially to confess. Who gets an opportunity to do that? Not many people. I'm lucky. Diligent, but lucky. That's such an extraordinary story that you tell on the thin blue line, but uh, cases like Texas, even when presented with unassailable evidence that somebody who's been put, say, on death row or convicted of a crime is, in fact, innocent, that doesn't mean the state's going to let somebody go. How surprised were you that eventually Randall Dale Adams was released? Incredibly relieved because I thought, I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life fighting to get this guy out of prison. And such a strange story, which I'm still intending to write about, because the movie tells you a kind of interesting story about the case, but the process of investigating this murder was a pretty amazing story in and of itself. I still can't believe how it happened. The federal judge wouldn't listen to his plea, no matter how persuasive and compelling the evidence was. It took a local judge, get this, you'll like this, it took a local judge in Dallas a black Muslim Republican to overturn the conviction, Judge Baraka. First of all, how many black Muslim Republicans are there in Texas, let alone in Dallas? Can't, can't imagine that there are that many. That guy is one of my heroes um, because he's a person that you could present evidence to, you could talk common sense to him, and he would listen. What an amazing story. What an amazing man. And we, um, we live in an era where rationality seems to have disappeared, where truth doesn't seem to matter very much to anybody anymore. Matters to me, but as you all well know, there's a certain major fraction of America that is in love with lies. And that's probably the most 
depressing element of this common era. Because if you can't even agree on what's truth and what's false, truth and falsity, you clearly can't agree on anything. And uh, one one chapter in your book, if if you wind up writing it, could be about the fact that Randall Dale Adams wound up suing you, which is an interesting way of thanking you for <laughs> getting him off of death row. Um, it's a long story, too. Uh, yes, he did sue me, and the suit was resolved. When I was investigating the case, I met a number of his lawyers, including his appellate lawyer who saved him from the electric chair, Mel Bruder. And I felt that his lawyer was lying to me, misrepresenting the work that he was doing on the case. I have no reason to change that assessment. We uh, did not get along. For a year and a half, I withheld all of my investigative materials from him. Uh, and it was only as this court date approached that he came to New York. I lived in New York at the time, and I showed him everything I had. But he hated me. The feeling was absolutely mutual. And I believe that that lawsuit came from him and not from Adams. I guess that's an answer. I think it's a very interesting answer and look forward to hearing more, reading more about it in your book. I, um, I think it's a privilege. I think it's the best way to describe it. I've had the privilege of, of making movies and interviewing a lot of crazy people. And um, I might even be crazy myself. I, uh, I once asked my wife, like, um, if I become senile, will you tell me? And she said, well, how would it be any different than the way you're acting right now? Thank you to Doc Talk's presenting partner, National Geographic Documentary Films, for their support of this podcast. Well, thank you to the great Errol Morris. Unfortunately, Errol is not the only documentary filmmaker to have done the extraordinary, that is, to free a wrongfully convicted person from prison on the basis of their film. A handful of other filmmakers have also achieved that incredibly rare and important feat. And we're going to be speaking with them, Joe Berlinger, Amy Berg, and Deborah Eskenazi. And just a forewarning, please note that the following portions of this episode contain depictions of violence and child abuse. One of the most famous, notable documentaries that have examined and reinvestigated situations in which three people were wrongly convicted of a crime and spent many years behind bars is, of course, the Paradise Lost trilogy directed by Joe Berlinger and the late Bruce Sanofsky. And Joe, thank you for speaking with us about it. You spent so many years of your life working on this case. Maybe you can uh, take us back to that absolutely horrible case involving three boys who were killed in this area of West Memphis, Arkansas. And then you and Bruce got involved and remained involved for so many years after that. Yes, good to talk to you, Matt. Hope all is well. Yeah, you know, the funny thing about having made three films over two decades that ultimately got the West Memphis Three exonerated is that when we started the project in 93, we actually thought we were making a film about kids killing kids. We were just off of Brothers Keeper, which is, I would like to say, a groundbreaking film of its era, you know, both in the true crime space and just generally. And Sheila Nevins at HBO was a big fan. And she sent me an article 
in the New York Times. And it was this article about these three teenagers in rural Arkansas, West Memphis, Arkansas, which is just eight miles from Memphis, Tennessee, but a whole world apart, that these three teenagers, Jason Baldwin, Jesse Miskelly, Damien Eccles, age 16, 17, and 18, had just been arrested uh, literally uh, days before for what the police were alleging was the satanic ritual killing where three eight-year-old boys had been taken into the woods and sacrificed to the devil in a satanic ritual. And Sheila thought it was an interesting thing to explore kids killing kids. We went down literally a week after the arrests in June of 93, embedded in that community, convinced we were making a film about terrible kids. You know, how could kids become so disaffected with life that they would do such a terrible thing as to murder three eight-year-olds, particularly in a satanic ritual? And for months, we thought we were making that film because we only had access to the families and to the police. But eventually, we negotiated access uh, to the West Memphis Three. They weren't called that then, of course. They were the rotten child murderers who believed in Satan. Uh, and they were being held without bail in county jail awaiting trial. And in November, we did our first series of interviews with them. And, and one plus one was not equaling two. It's not that a light bulb went off and we said, oh my God, they're innocent, but just something didn't feel right ab about what the, what the state was alleging. We, we never imagined that it would actually go to trial and become like the Salem witch hunt, where there was no evidence introduced into trial, where their tastes for Metallica music and Stephen King novels would actually be introduced as evidence that they were guilty child murderers. And in fact, we sat through this trial, we filmed this trial, we were horrified. And that's where the gene in me was awakened or the mission was awakened. Because prior to that, I can't say that I was into wrongful convictions. I barely knew they existed. I barely knew it was an issue. I barely understood what a false confession was. But at that moment, we knew we were sitting on a pile of footage that we had to tell the world that something terrible had happened. Little did we know it would take 18 and a half years and two more films before any action took place. I think it's very safe to say, though, that if you had not taken an interest in this case of Sheila Nevins, the legendary figure who ran documentary films at HBO for so long, if she hadn't put that in front of you, that probably this case would never have been reinvestigated and uh, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Muskelly would, would not have been released from prison and Damien Eccles probably would have been executed. I mean, I, without patting ourselves on the back, because a lot of people were involved in their release, tens of thousands of people agitated once the first film came out, agitated for years for, for movement on the case. Lots of famous names got involved. The film came out at exactly the right time in terms of the internet kind of was just being born and people finding each other, you know, social media 1.0, people just finding each other on the internet with like-minded interests. It just blew the case up. And regular people in the literally tens of thousands all got involved and found each other. And of course, the big names, Metallica, Eddie Vedder, Johnny Depp, you know, they all played a role in publicizing the case, but I have to agree, but I would modify your comment because literally all the media at the time was saying that these guys were guilty, even during the trial and after the trial. I would say that because we bucked the trend, because we were the only ones who said, hey, something is wrong here, because we were investigative and not just neutral observers, I think that's what made the difference for the guys. And Damien clearly would be dead by now. He he himself would tell you that he would have been dead after seven or eight years. But 
it's tricky to take credit because there's a lot of great lawyers and advocates and people who did a lot to get them out of prison besides the film. But the film and the films, all three of them were definitely a catalyst. How do you view the uh, capacity of documentary film to make a difference in cases where somebody has been wrongfully convicted? I think what documentary can do that an article can't is, is the human connection. Uh, you 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 know you 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 have a visual you feel you you interact emotionally with the people on screen an article doesn't do that also the nature of storytelling of documentary storytelling we are not just journalists we are journalists we are advocates we're storytellers those three impulses are constantly in collision or working together what works for journalism doesn't necessarily work for storytelling. For example, if I was a journalist writing purely an article for the New York Times about um, a, a wrongful conviction case, the selective withholding of information until the right dramatic moment is something an editor would tell you you can't do. But as a filmmaker, the selective withholding of information until the right dramatic moment is just kind of what a good documentary is about because we're not just journalists we're storytellers so i think the medium is much more conducive to evoking an emotion in a human being and that emotion as we saw in the paradise lost case because again you know you were nice enough to give me credit for and bruce sanofsky by extension who you know sadly passed away about eight years ago You've given me credit for the films getting these guys out, but really what got these guys out is the films inspired regular people to leave their daily life and go down to Arkansas on their vacation and protest for years, year after year. And I think an article would not inspire that kind of emotion. I thought Paradise Lost One was going to bust the jail cells wide open like Errol's Thin Blue Line did had an immediate impact. But the state of Arkansas disavowed the film, disavowed, you know, called it a piece of fiction when it came out. And so the second film was actually about the activism that we were witnessing, you know, that despite all of this evidence that the state of Arkansas was still holding tight to this false narrative. So by inspiring people to act by letting them make their own decision about what they're seeing on screen, I think is fundamental. Yes, and of course at that early time there was limited DNA testing in, in terms of its rigor. And ever since then, particularly Damien Eccles has been trying to get more advanced DNA tests done on the evidence because in 2011 he and uh, Jason and Jesse were released from prison, but they took Alford pleas, meaning... They continue to maintain their innocence, but it's a technical legal thing where they acknowledge that the prosecution probably has enough evidence to convict them. So they very much would like to be exonerated, and that's still tied up in the courts. It's incredible. I mean, the state of Arkansas has acted so cowardly and so corruptly through that, throughout this entire case. Even if you want to accept the legitimacy of their original case in the sense of that they really thought he was guilty— Let's, let's just accept that, and I, I have my doubts there, but let's just accept the original case. They thought they were, they were misguided and bad police work, and you know, but there was no ill intent. And again, that's a hypothesis that I wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't hold up too much. But once it became clear, once the evidence started coming out, they have acted abominably. Why in 2023 would 
the state of Arkansas resist DNA testing to fully exonerate. Why? Because they don't want to demonstrate that they actually made a mistake. They're still hiding behind the story. Well, we still think he's, that these guys are the killers, but we're, we've let them out after 18 and a half years of prison. But we still think they're the killers, which is absurd because shame on Arkansas Shame on the state of Arkansas, not the people. I've met lots of good people down there, but shame on the state of Arkansas. You know, when a, when the state of Arkansas purposefully avoids investigating actually who the real killer is, it means the real killer of these three boys has been on the streets for the last 20 years, actually more than that, you know, since 93. And that's that's the double embarrassment and shame of Arkansas, that they're allowing a real killer to go free because they're too embarrassed to admit the truth. What are, from your point of view, what are the potential pitfalls of this kind of documentary work that ultimately examines questions of guilt or innocence? Well, you know, the pitfalls are, it's a very serious subject. You got to get it right. So if you're going to take on a case, you know, I spent years after Paradise Lost with the fear, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? <laughs> Obviously, I don't believe I'm wrong, but you have that fear, you know, because there are people involved. Sadly, the parents of the victims, I mentioned at the top of this, that for the first couple of months, we spent most of the time on this case uh, getting to know and spending time with the families, the victims who had lost their eight-year-old child to a horrendous murder. I can't imagine as a parent, I can't imagine anything worse and horrific and when our films came out, and we warned them in advance, it's not like they were sandbagged, but we warned them in advance that we had come to believe that they were innocent. And they hated our guts for years. They couldn't believe that we had upset the apple cart. You want to know that the perpetrator of this horrible act has been caught, arrested, convicted. And they were, they believed in the police. They believed in the system. Eventually, two of the three families came around to our point of view, but one of the families still to this day believes that we're terrible people, that we did a terrible thing, and that we allowed that a bunch of Hollywood guys, and if anyone really knew me and the fact that I live in upstate New York, I'm as far from Hollywood as one could be, you know, but they believe we, for money and fame, painted a false story to allow the killers of their children to be set free. And God, nothing is more painful. I care so deeply about these issues. Thank you again, Joe, so much for being with us. All right, Matt. Appreciate it. Take care. Well, Amy Berg, you've been involved in directing two very prominent documentaries that looked at sensational murder cases. The Case Against Adnan Syed, which is a four-part HBO miniseries that premiered in 2019. And then before that, West of Memphis in 2012, which is a future documentary about the case of the West Memphis Three. But let's first talk about The Case Against Adnan Syed. Many people know of it initially through the serial podcast that Sarah Koenig produced, and your documentary came along a few years later, but you immersed yourself in what is certainly a very, very complicated case that has gone through the courts now for over 20 years. Right. It's complicated. It's, it was a very unsatisfying ending in 2015 or 2016. Whenever I listened to Serial, I just felt like it's so complicated. It's so confusing but there's no real substance to this case. And as a journalism major and a student of Nancy Drew growing up, I just wanted to kind of see what else there was to it. 
And everywhere we looked, it was kind of the same thing where there was no actual evidence, no actual physical evidence that connected this young man to this crime. And let's remind people that the victim in this case was high school student Heyman Lee. She was a fellow classmate of Adnan Syed. They had been boyfriend and girlfriend for a while. And a tragic case, of course, that her body was discovered a little bit outside of Baltimore. And suspicion then eventually fell onto Adnan Syed and he was convicted of her murder and sentenced to life in prison. Right. And I mean, you brought up the West Memphis three case as well. And these are two cases from the 90s when DNA evidence wasn't as readily accessible as it is today. So there are two cases that have a lot of physical evidence and nothing that connects either of the suspects to the crime. And so when you see that, it's kind of an obvious question of like, what actually happened here. And in my four years of working on West of Memphis and my seven years of working on this case of Ednan Saeed, I just found the same types of police departments that are unwilling to look at the DNA. I mean, in September of last year, the stepping down city state's attorney general turned a heap of DNA evidence over to the Baltimore City Police Department, and there there are suspicions about other potential suspects, and they haven't even started to run those cases, uh, those DNA samples. And so it's just kind of starting with that, which is what obviously is why, you know, it's the impetus of the Innocence Project as well, is if you have evidence that doesn't connect to the, the people that have been convicted, there's probably something wrong with the case. And so that's what drew my attention to both of those cases. I'm curious about the ethical framework that you work from when you are directing a documentary about a case in which someone may have been wrongfully convicted. There are still people who maintain that Adnan Saeed is guilty. What do you keep in mind? What are the parameters that are important to you as you approach such a sensitive case where you potentially have a wrongly convicted individual, but you also have a grieving family who has lost their daughter in this case? One of the first things we did with the Adnan Saeed case is we hired a team of investigators to see who did it, not just not just did Adnan do it or not. It was who did it. And we looked at everything that we could that was available on the public record. And we kept coming back to the same kinds of things, which is just it's one person who had a history of not telling the truth and not telling his story the same more than once that statements convicted a non-Saeed, but there's no physical evidence. So, I mean, you have to presume that he's innocent at that point because there isn't something damning to suggest that he's guilty. And that's my position as a human and a filmmaker. In terms of the ethics around his release, I, I've been following and documenting this story since my show aired in 2018 on HBO. And I have a film that is finished right now that can't be released because there are still legal questions going on today. So, I mean, that is an ethical decision that we made with HBO that we would allow the process to finalize before we put this story out because it's going to not have a complete ending yet. So we just, we have to work within the parameters of what is in front of us and covering all sides of the story is always my agenda as a filmmaker. As a documentary filmmaker, do you perceive a difference between the impact that a film can have versus a podcast or, say, a, a book investigation of a case like this? I mean, in terms of serial, I, that's probably the single most popular podcast that's ever been created. 
And yet there's something about film that can really grab people also in a very emotional way and change minds or motivate people to become interested and involved in a case. Absolutely. I mean, we are dealing with the visual medium and you didn't see anyone's faces in serial, obviously. And um, I got to spend considerable amount of time with a lot of the people that Anand grew up with and went to school with. And you can see in terms of consistency of story, um, how people relate in person versus we all know how easy it is to do things when we're not in the you know, company of another person with social media, as crazy as it is right now. Um, So I think that it was pretty telling to be in the room with Jen Pusateri and Christy Vinson and all the folks that we interviewed over time and see like where they're at today is different than where they were at when they were 17 and 18 years old and in fear of their parents finding something out or in fear of not going to college or in fear of everything that the police department was putting in front of them. So I think that time tells a really good story in the case of both West of Memphis and Adnan Saeed. You mentioned uh, West of Memphis. Uh, Your film was produced by Peter Jackson and by Damien Eccles. Damien Eccles is one of the young men. I mean, he was 18 years old when he was initially charged in that case, along with Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly. And that's a case that continues to this day, because Damien Nichols is also seeking access to DNA evidence that he believes could actually lead to his exoneration, full exoneration. I don't know why it's so difficult for anyone in Arkansas to take a look at this case. First, they said there was a fire, and now they won't test the evidence. And it's just, I mean, it's insane. They said there was a fire that destroyed evidence. Yes, yes. Hmm. And I've heard that a couple times in other cases as well. I mean, I, I don't know why it's so dangerous for them to, you know, pull the lid off of this. I mean, obviously, money would be behind it. But like, I don't know how people sleep at night thinking that they might have sent somebody to prison for something they didn't do for 20 years. I I, I don't know how that is possible. You mentioned Peter Jackson earlier, and I'll say that I was not as familiar with the case as Fran and Peter when they reached out to me to direct it. Peter's um, wife, Fran. Fran, yeah. And one of the first things that they had sent to me was that they wanted to see if, I mean, this is gruesome, but the kids had markings all over their body. And in the courtroom, it was presented as if they were stab wounds, like it was a satanic crime and somebody had stabbed them. And there was a dental expert who thought that it was, that it was suggestive of turtle wounds, not um, stabbing wounds. And so one of the first shoots I did on the film was at a turtle farm in Missouri with John the turtle farmer. And When he showed me, he showed me on his own arm what a bite looks like. It was identical to the wounds on the kids that it just made, suddenly the whole case makes no sense. If they're not stab wounds, then there's no evidence that could potentially connect to a satanic murder. So it was another thing like the DNA evidence in Adnan's case that just convinced me that justice was not served. So once I hear or see something like that, I just can't stop until I get to the bottom of it. Yes, in the case of, um, again, going back to the original trial in in 94, an alleged murder weapon was fished out of a lake that was behind the home of Jason Baldwin and presented as, well, effectively as the murder weapon or likely murder weapon. But if there were no knife wounds, well, that is not relevant to the case. But it was like that story was, I'm sorry to laugh, but I'm just thinking about how the photographer just happened to be there at the time that the 
fishermen pulled it up. And it was just like, it was so orchestrated. Things like that just don't happen in real life. So it was, the whole thing was like a theater play. So, yeah. There have been cases in the past that didn't have to do with documentaries, but celebrities got interested in, say, the conviction of an individual. And one thinks of Norman Mailer. This is going way back to the case of a man who was, I think, rightfully convicted of murder. He got out of prison uh, had written a book called The Belly of the Beast, and unfortunately, he, he went and he killed someone else. So it became a terrible scandal. That really, in many ways, has nothing to do with the kind of work you're doing here, which is, especially in the case of the West Memphis Three, I think everyone agrees, almost everyone agrees, that there had nothing to do with this crime whatsoever. There, again, some people who are have suspicions about Anand Sayed, but I, I say that to preface the question of, to what degree you you worry as an individual of getting so immersed in these cases and, you know, God forbid something would happen involving any of these people who are ultimately released. I wonder how much that weighs on you or is a concern. Well, of course, that would be horrible if you were to believe in somebody that was not telling you the truth. Um, I went in, I looked at the evidence on both of these cases, and I, you know, I didn't have the opinion that Damien was innocent before I started making West of Memphis. And I, I surely did not have the opinion that Adnan was innocent when I started making that film. I was just but both Paradise Lost, the first film, and Serial end on kind of a cliffhanger where you're kind of wondering, uh, you know, who knows what really happened. And so it would be horrible. And of course, you know, you have moments of fear and doubt where you're wondering if you've made the right decision, but I have to follow my gut. That's all I can do. And my gut was following the evidence that I was reading and looking at. So, but I, but you make a really good point, you know. Well, Amy Berg, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And we hope that we will see your follow-up film about the case against Adnan Saeed. Thank you, Matt. It was great to catch up with you, and good luck with the podcast. I'll listen. Deadline's Doc Talk episode is sponsored by National Geographic Documentary Films, presenting Bobby Wine, the People's President. In Uganda's 2021 presidential election, music star, activist, and opposition leader Bobby Wine rallies his people in a dangerous fight for freedom from an oppressive 35-year regime. Playlist hails it as a portrait of unfathomable political courage, and the San Francisco Chronicle boldly declares it a clarion call against authoritarianism. The film made its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival and has screened at Telluride, BFI London International Film Festival, Two Falls, among many others, taking home audience awards at the Hamptons International Film Festival, Boston International Film Festival, and CPH Docs. Bobby Wine, the People's President, starts streaming on Hulu and Disney Plus October 6th. So Deborah Eskenazi, it's fantastic to speak with you, the director of Southwest of Salem, the story of the San Antonio Four. Your film came out in 2016. What was it like to work on the case of these four women who spent a huge amount of time in prison, each of them, for a crime? There was no crime. No crime was committed. 
That's right. And it was at the center of, or the tail end of the satanic panic, which I know now a lot of people have sort of explored filmically. At the time, we really only had the West Memphis Three trilogy, which was exceptional. And I knew about the satanic panic because I grew up in Texas. And I remember very clearly like getting pulled into high school classes that would explore the issue and, you know, be careful because, you know, Satan is on the loose sort of thing. But it took me six years to investigate that case. And, you know, at the time I had really only made short films and had a little bit of radio experience and worked as a researcher at the Village Voice. I also, by the way, worked for a private detective firm in Manhattan. So a lot of the kind of media investigative experience I had was really just behind the scenes and small sort of thrushes. And so this was one of those things where making what felt in my mind as a kind of epic investigative film was very new for me. And I described it at the time as being like the smallest little tugboat kind of trying to follow a barge. It was like so much bigger than my own resources and so much bigger than my own experience at the time. And it was overwhelming looking back at it now. Mm. And uh, take us back to the case. Uh, these are four openly gay women, Elizabeth Ramirez, Cassandra Rivera, Christy Mayhew, and Anna Vasquez, who were accused of almost in a ritualistic fashion, sexually abusing two nieces, young nieces of Elizabeth. They are accused by the brother-in-law who we discover was in love with the alleged ringleader, who was a woman named Elizabeth Ramirez. And the original trial transcript, when I first read it and I was deciding whether or not to pursue it as a story to take on, was just shocking to me. It was, you know, they were naked on a couch and they were doing these horrific things to these two little girls. There was tequila involved. There was a knife. There was a gun. No, there wasn't a knife. Yes, there was a gun. Like it was just constant flipping back and forth in the original trial transcript. There was cocaine. There wasn't cocaine. And, you know, the thing about as any criminal defense attorney can tell you, it didn't pass the smell test. There were too many ambiguities, too many competing evidence that just didn't make sense. And as you start to poke further and further, you can see there's a sort of fairy tale component to it that we explored in the film. And it really came out of a time of the satanic panic and the notion that like fears that these horrific things were happening to children. And when I read the original trial transcript, it just didn't sit well with me. Yes. And the pediatrician who initially examined the girls just seemingly off the top of her head offered, well, this sounds like a satanic situation without any evidence at all to back that up. I will say she pointed to flawed forensic evidence. So she did have a little bit of something, which was an illusion that she had made up, which is she looked at the hymens when she did a rape kit test. She looked at the hymens of one of the little girls and said, well, this looks a lot like there is damage. There are scar tissues on this hymen, which in her mind pointed to evidence that this little girl had been molested. However, soon after this case, a whole body of forensic evidence came up that said, wait a minute, women's hymens are not perfect like a cherry, like we always used to say colloquially. They're scarred, they're tissue. So they look like tissue. There are rolls and ridges and other things. And so the forensic evidence was debunked soon after. Now, the problem was the women were in prison for flawed junk science. And so when we unearthed it, we had to sort of present also the body of new evidence. Like we now know the notion of a 
you know, Hyman being smooth like a cherry, the popping the cherry thing is a complete myth. So we also were looking at sort of this kind of misogynistic underbelly of the stories we tell about women's body parts, right? So there were layers of things we were playing on or, or motifs that we were sort of bringing out in order to tell this story. One of the things that's so unusual about this case is because of your documentary and the work of the Texas Innocence Project and the persistence of the women who were convicted, they were fully exonerated by the state of Texas. Incredibly rare for that to happen in Texas or any other state. And that had a lot to do with your film. How does that make you feel as the filmmaker? Yeah, it's incredible. So the San Antonio Four and I got these tattoos after they were exonerated. And, you know, when I'm having a really bad day and feel just horrible. I try to remind myself it really was a collective. It really was a collective mission. And it was it was incredible. When you were so closely engaged with prisoners in this case who spent years behind bars, Elizabeth Ramirez was sentenced to 37 and a half years for this crime that never took place. How do you deal with the sense of responsibility you have because you know so much is riding upon this? And, and yet there's only so much you can control. You can make a film, and then what happens beyond that ultimately is out of your hands. So I'm so happy you asked that. The the answer for and you know is there's just no way. It's it's like uh, it's like the like attorneys dealing with clients. Like the weight of it is sort of on your shoulders. But I will tell you one thing I had to do, and this is kind of a secret. If you rewatch the film, you can see it play out. But if you watch it the first time, it, it it's hard to catch. But so while I was making Southwest of Salem, I actually leaked to the local press. I leaked the recantation that you see in the center. And it was that leaking that created a sort of interest by the media. And the reason I did that is because I didn't know that I could make a, I didn't know if I could ever actually end up making a film. I had no money. I had no resources. I had no support. At the time, Sundance, who was my first funder, didn't, wasn't even on. And I was like, look, am I making a film or am I helping these women? And I just had sort of this constant, like, what am I doing here? You know, if it's just a film, I have this incredible piece of like, I have a recantation in my hands. And, so, and, and let me interrupt, interrupt you to ask about the recantation. This is one of the girls who, as a, you know, she was eight or nine years old, who testified initially under duress, as we found out later. And, and and as you say, as an adult, then she went back and said, no, this didn't happen. That's right. And, you know, she did this to her aunt. And, you know, the, 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 the extraordinary bravery it took for this little girl to do, because you find out, you watch the vindictive father sort of emerge, you know, as a, as a kind of ghoul in this film. But, you know, she did it with so much bravery. And, and I, you know, I was with the Innocence Project when it happened. I had this incredible moment and I was like, shoot, if we, if I don't do something, this is a moment that could very well pass me by if I don't make a film. And so I ended up calling the San Antonio Express News and I found one of the reporters and I sent them the audio. And you can see, if you watch the film again, you can hear the San Antonio Express News report on the fact that they got a leak. We actually have that in the audio. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. I think that the reality is if you've got this, if you've got new evidence, it is our duties as journalists and documentarians to share that. And, you know, because we don't know what's going to happen and because these are real lives and because we do have, uh, we do are in service of the people who are subjects 
as well as in service of the people who are watching, but really first in service of our subjects. Deborah Skenazi, it's been so great to speak with you. And congratulations on Southwest of Salem and all that it has done for the women at the heart of the case. Thank you so much, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I want to thank Errol Morris, Deborah Skenazi, Amy Berg, and Joe Berlinger for joining us today to talk about really one of the incredible powers of documentary, which is in rare circumstances to correct a grave injustice in the criminal justice system. But John, it occurs to me that there's a different kind of power of documentary to address wrongs in the criminal justice system. And I'm referring here to a remarkable aspect of your film, Let It Fall, 1982 to 1992, your documentary where you examined how a suspended sentence given to a woman who shot a black young woman in Los Angeles, set the stage for the Los Angeles uprising of 1992. Yeah, the film, and first of all, when we sat down to do Doc Talk and we wanted to put it in context, what we're talking about, we said, you know, is it too much to say that these are documentaries that are changing the world, but you see that, that lives are changed, you know, specifically by the work of the individuals that you spoke with, but documentary filmmakers who are working out there right now. Um, Let It Fall, Los Angeles, 1982 to 1992, was a documentary I had the opportunity to do on the 25th anniversary of the Rodney King uprising. And it was really interesting to me to see how many different plates, if you will, you know, like we live in California, I live in California, where the, these fissures, these plates that are under the surface that are constantly shifting, and that leads to these massive earthquakes, but these shifts are happening constantly. And one of the stories that is tragic and unfortunately to some degrees forgotten, the story of a, of a young girl, Latasha Harlins, who was in a grocery store in the South Central area, just a small you know, corner liquor store, which which in those areas, unfortunately, were, were sometimes in these, you know, food deserts, the only places that families could go, not for liquor, but just to get goods, just to, to get the things that, you know, you and I take for granted going to larger grocery stores. The young girl was just getting a, a little, I call it a thing, a little thing of orange juice, had an unfortunate encounter at the counter with the matriarch of the family that ran the store, a woman named Soon John Du. Uh, however it began, it, it, it ended brutally when Latasha Harlins was shot in the back of the head by Soon Ja Du. This case went to trial. Soon Ja Du was convicted of manslaughter. Uh, manslaughter is on the books for a reason. It doesn't mean that you meant to kill someone, but a murder happens, a killing happens. The jury, in, in my opinion, as, as juries do, they, they look at the evidence, they do their job, they arrive at a decision. And if people remember that story at all, they, they sometimes just think that, well, you know, the Soon Ja Du, unfortunately, like far too many individuals who take the lives of BIPOC individuals, the system doesn't care. They, the system do, does not care. In this case, the jury convicted Soon Ja Du, but shockingly, something that almost never, if ever happens, the judge, independent of what the jury decided set aside that verdict and let Soon John Du off. Now, there are sentencing guidelines. It would have been well within the judge's right to say, look, and I'm just, I don't know the exact guidelines, but, you know, three to five years. Based on Soon John Du's history, the fact that she'd never exhibited violence before, we're going to go at the low end of that sentencing. That's perfectly correct. But to simply say, well, young black girl was killed, so what? 
we're just going to let this individual off. That was a stepping stone on the path that led to this uprising. So yes, Matt, there are people, as you say, in, in your interviews today that are out there doing this work and correcting these injustices. I, I wish I could say I had that opportunity, but I did have the opportunity, as many other documentarians do, to look back at history and say, um, look, here's what we're missing. Here's what we forgot. Here's a story that you think you know but here are the facts. And for me, it was an honor to present facts, particularly in an era where that divide between history and facts, reality and supposition just gets wider and wider and wider. And that, Matt, I will say is why I'm so excited to be doing Doc Talk with you each and every week. Well, thank you so much, John. And uh, your film is so important. And again, speaks to the power of documentary to really dig very deeply into wrongs and in some cases correct them or in other cases all you can do is highlight them which you did so beautifully and importantly i think in let it fall los angeles 1982 to 1992 john on our next episode you and i will be speaking with tom powers the documentary programmer at the toronto international film festival about the state of documentary film we hope you'll join us every week for a new episode of doc talk 